Hello, my brothers and sisters. Thank you for joining us once again for During Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Kitts. And as always, we want to open up in a prayer and thank God for this opportunity. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your wonderful grace and your love. And we thank you, Lord, that you're always with us, Lord, no matter what we do, Lord, and how we act. Lord, you're always there and you always care. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, and we lift you up. Bless this word, Lord, that it will touch the mark that you want it to touch and, and the people that you want it to reach. We thank you and we praise you in your blessed holy name. Amen. The focal point of Abram's faith. We find this in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 21. Now you got to remember this was before God changed Abram to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, we come to one of the high watermark points of the Old Testament revelation, summarized for us in verse 6 when it says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Up to this point, Abram's faith had been just general in nature. It was rested primarily on the call of God as recorded in chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth to from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land of which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse Genesis 12 1 through 3 God seldom allows our faith to remain general and so we face crises to the point to bring our faith from the abstract to the concrete, from something that we wish for to something solid, from general to specific, such is the case of Abram in this chapter 15. Abram's hope for an heir is this next little part, the beginning of chapter 15. God's word to Abraham was far from what that we would expect in such circumstances. It says, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. We need to remember that later, Abram is called a prophet in chapter 20 of Genesis. This should indicate that Moses understood the revelation that had to come to Abram for his benefit and for ours. Why would Abram possibly be afraid? Why would Abram possibly be afraid? He had just won a great victory over Shalandam Mahler, the other three eastern kings in chapter 14 of Genesis. Because this he had, no doubt, received considerable recognition even from a pagan god of Sodom. What fear would haunt Abram's faith at such a time of a great victory? It's possible that Abram feared future military reprisals from Shalamandar and his allies. He may have won the battle, but had he won the war, the word of God was to Abram, he said, I am a shield to you. It could very well be aimed at subsiding the fear of future military conflicts. This could not be Abram's greatest concern, though, especially in the view of the remaining verses. Abram's victory was not so sweet in the light of one question, which seemed to overshadow everything else. What good is success without a successor? Abram's response to God confirms this. And Abram said, O Lord, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, 
one born in my house is my heir. In the ancient Near East, there was a well-attested practice to ensure an heir, even if there was no son that was born to the man. The childless couple would adopt one of the servants born into their household. This son would care for them in their old age and would inherit their possessions and property at the time of their death. At this low point in Abram's faith, it was the best for him which he thought that he could hope for. God had promised Abram far more than that which he could provide for himself. Eliezer was not an heir that he had been promised. His descendants were to come from his own productive reproductive selves. He would have a son of his own. Then behold, the word of God came to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your own heir. To reassure Abram, God took him outside and drew his attention to the stars in the heaven. This is how numerous the offspring of Abram would be through his son that would surely come. In verse 6, it describes Abram's response to divine revelation. Then he believed the Lord. He reckoned it to himself as righteousness. Verse 6 is the first time that the word belief or believe is used. It is also the first time that Abram is said to have been reckoned as righteous. It would be easy to conclude that Moses meant that this is the first time Abram had faith in God and that he were saved. That's a word that was used in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, we read, By faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to the place in which he had was to receive for an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. And that's Hebrews 11 and 8. Where the writer Hebrew intends us to understand that Abram believed God before chapter 15, even as he left Ur to enter into the land of Canaan. The solution is not as difficult as it may seem. The grammar of verse 6 indicates that Abram's faith did not begin here. Not only did he previously believe, he continued to believe. And then, of our translation, may therefore be very strong. But why did Moses wait until this point to tell us that Abram believed and that he was justified by his faith? Abram's faith is not mentioned until now in order to emphasize the fact that the saving faith is one of the focuses upon the the person in their walk with Jesus. Here Abram's faith is focused on the promise of a son through whom blessings will come to the whole world. While we may not be faithfully determined to complete Abram's understanding of all this, we must not overlook the words of the Savior in John chapter 8 verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. While Abram believed in God, here his faith is clearly more defined and focused. Here his faith is the promise of God to provide a blessed son and blessings through him. It is at this point that God chose to announce that Abram's faith was his saving faith. Notice the three things about the faith of Abraham. One, first of all, it was a personal faith. By this I mean that Abram believed in the Lord. He did not merely believe in God. Herein, in this distinction, many professed Christians and those who are possessing Christians genuinely reborn by faith in Jesus Christ. Abram's faith was proportional faith. While Abram believed in the person of God, his faith was based upon the promises of God. Many believed that a God of their own de- definition. Abram believed in the God of revolution. 
the covenant God that made with Abraham back in verse 12 gave Abraham specific proportions on which to base his faith and his practices. Number three, Abram's faith was also a practical faith. By this, I mean that Abram's belief was one that necessitated action. Clearly, Abram's work did not initiate his salvation, but it did demonstrate it. Also, Abram's faith was related to the very practice in the sense needed, the need of a son. God does not ask us to believe in the abstract, but in the everyday matters of life. When Moses says that Abram's faith was reckoned for righteousness, it does not mean when Moses said that Abram's faith was reckoned for righteousness, it does not mean that Abram's faith was, in some fashion, exchanged for righteousness. Abram's faith, like ours today, is not something that he conjured up by a mental or spiritual effort. Faith itself is a gift. We see that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. His faith was in the coming child and his offspring, one of whom would be the Messiah. It was because Abram looked to the one God that would provide the righteousness that God declared to him to be righteous. Technically speaking, salvation and faith are a gift, but righteousness comes through the legal process of imputation. Abram was legally declared righteous by God because he trusted in him who was righteous. The righteousness of Christ imputed to Abram because of his God-given faith, it saved him. God's way of saving men is not new. It has not changed from the Old Testament to the New. Always God has saved men by grace through faith. There is no other way. While Abram was saved by faith in the one who would come, he was saved by faith in the one who has come. That is the only difference. Verses 7 through 21 talks about the reassurance concerning the land that Abram would possess. Having dealt with Abram's greatest need of reassurance, namely an heir, God went on to strengthen Abram's faith concerning the land that he would possess. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans to give you the land to possess it. Abram's question did not seem to reflect disbelief, but wonder how this would be accomplished. And he said, O Lord, how may I know that I shall possess it? In verse 8. The tone seems to be similar of what Mary's told when she would be the mother of the Messiah. And Mary said to the angel, How could this be since I am a virgin? In Luke 1, 34. But God did not rebuke Abram for his question, but confirmed his promise by a covenant. So he said to him, Bring me three-year-old heifer and three-year-old female goat and three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. When he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite each other, he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram had to drive them away. In the ancient world, Abram legally and binding agreements were not put on paper written by a lawyer and then signed by two parties involved. Instead, the two parties would arrive with a mutual acceptable agreement and then they would formalize it in a form of covenant. The covenant was sealed by the divine dividing of an animal or animals. In fact, the technical term 
means go cut a covenant. The animals were cut in half and the two parties would pass between the two halves. It seemed that this was an oath. The men acknowledged that the fate of the animals would be theirs if they had broke the terms of the agreement. So we see that these verses did not describe the process of animal sacrifice, but the legal action of making a binding covenant. Verses 1-9 through nine set the stage for the final ratification of this covenant. Towards the end of the delay of chasing away the ravenous birds, Abram fell into a deep trance-like state. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him verse 12. The terror and darkness, in my estimation, was more like the occasion by the awareness of God's presence. I believe it was a normal response of the horrors of revelation of a treatment of Abram's children for the next 400 years. Abram's descendants would possess the land of Canaan, but not until a considerable delay and many difficulties. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that not possesses theirs. There will be slaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out in many possessions. That's 13 and 14 of Genesis 15. Very carefully, Egypt remains unnamed as the land where this bondage would appear or occur. Not only did Abram not need to know this, but such knowledge would not have been transmutable before this bondage came to pass. It was no problem for those who read this word of Moses to know that the land of which he spoke. Indeed, they had just come from Egypt. What a strange thing it must have been for the focus of the Israelites who had been brought out of Egypt to read this prophecy which so accurately described their experience. There seemed to be two reasons for the 400-year delay before the land of Canaan would be possessed. First, the children of Abraham would have not yet been able in number-wise to possess the land earlier. So the people of the land were not yet wicked enough to be thrust out. It says, Then in the fourth generation they shall return, for the iniquities of the Amorites have not yet been complete. Here's an important principle and one that governs the possession of the land of Canaan. God owns the land of Canaan, according to Leviticus 25 and 23. And he lets those out who live according to righteousness. When Israel forgot their God and practiced the abominations of the Canaanites, God put them out of the land as well. In the light of the present debate over whose legitimate claim of the land of Israel, let us remember the same principle. It is God who owns that land, not the Jews, not the Arabs. But God allows the Jews to possess the land and live wickedly any more than he would the Gentile. Over the next 400 or more years in the time of the to this revelation, the two programs were simultaneously at work. The Canaanites were growing more and more wicked, and their day of reckoning was steadily approaching. At the same time, the nation of Israel was about to be born, rapidly in growing in numbers and spiritual maturity, preparing for the day of possession. Is this not the picture of our day as well? Has God not said in the last day wickedness would intensify? At the same time, God is purifying and preparing us for his return. The wicked will receive their compensation for their sins, and the saints will be rewarded for their righteousness. When God has spoken to Abraham's peaceable death at a ripe old age in the faith of his offspring, he rectified the covenant concerning the land that would belong to Israel. It came about when the sun had started to set, and it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven 
and a flaming torch, which was passed between these pieces. On the day of the Lord that he made the covenant with Abram, is saying, Your descendants I have given this land, from the rivers of Egypt, as far as the great river of river Euphrates, the Canaanite and the Canaanites, and the Kadamites, and the Hittites, and the Pezzarites, and the Aphrams, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Gershashites, and the Jebusites. That's 17 through 21. This covenant is distinct because only God, in the appearance of a smoking oven and a flaming torch, passed between the divine carcass of an animal that they had laid out. This was done to signify that the covenant was unilateral, not an unconditional. No conditions were placed upon Abram for his fulfillment of it. They didn't pass through together, that only God passed through this, saying, I got this, this is all me. All you have to do is agree to the covenant. I've got all the action. The geographical boundaries I have been clearly defined, and even the people's names that possessed the land was noted. God committed himself to a very specific course of action. What more assurance could be asked for? We see the bottom line for Abram was that God's promise was much more than specific. Abram would have a son of his own whom the blessings would be poured out. Abraham's offspring would be so numerous in time that they would possess the land. Before this, though, there would be a delay and great difficulty. The essence of Abram's faith was that while he was waiting on the promise for future blessing, he was content in the meantime with the presence of God. Abram did not come out on the short end of the stick. Abram's great reward was God himself. I am a shield to you, your very great reward. Our theology has been greatly distorted in recent days. We are invited to come to Christ as a Savior because of all that He can do and has done for us. Abram was neither cheated nor shortchanged in the delay of God in the difficulties that he and his offspring would face. Abram was blessed, for if God is our portion, that is enough. Here then is the key to understand the blessing that will be found in delays and difficulties. While prosperity often leads us away from God, affliction draws us closer. If nearness to God is the highest good, then suffering is good also. If it enhances our intimacy with God, and prosperity is evil if it inclines us away from the good of knowing God. That, I believe, is the key of Genesis chapter 15. Abram's faith was strengthened by specific revelations concerning his son and the soil of which his offspring will inherit. But even beyond this, he is brought to the realization that faith cannot be separated from suffering. For God uses this to draw men to intimate fellowship with him. Faith is seldom strengthened by success, but it is believed God in the midst of the delays and difficulties. Then what shall we say of these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring the charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies us. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather he who raised to be at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. But in all things we 
overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus Christ who loves us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers or height or depth nor any other created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God for which is Jesus Christ our Lord. You see that in Romans 8. 31 through 39. Therefore, since we have so great of a witness around us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance this race that is set before us. Fix our eyes on Jesus and the author and perfecter of our faith, who for a joy set before him enduring the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand on the throne of God. And consider him who has endured such hostilities by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your strife against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortations which have addressed you as sons. He said, My sons, do not regard light the discipleship of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproached by him. For those who love the Lord, loves his disciples. He scourges every son of whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? Alright, well, we're going to close in a prayer and uh, we'll see you next pod. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your wonderful love and your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you have a plan. You know what we need and you know how to get us there, Lord. We thank you and we praise us. Use us how you see fit in your blessed holy name. And amen.